Jodcast. Is there anyone out there? With Megan Argo, George Bendo, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver, and Prabhu Tiagaraj. The Jodcast, January 2015 edition. Hello and welcome to the first Jodcast of 2015. I'm Mark and presenting with me are George in the studio and via Skype, Megan. Hello. Hello. And also, happy birthday to us, because it's the Jodcast's ninth birthday this month. Scary, that. Well, Megan, you, you're the only one who's been involved since the beginning. From the that's beginning. That's here today. Well, oh, that's here today. I was going to say Ian Morrison's been here from the start as well. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's hard to believe it's been going for nine years. In the show this time, Prabhu interviews Dr. Jill Tarter about SETI. Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the January night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Ian Harrison with this month's news. In the news this month, Mars belches and Planck's satellite apes Van Gogh. Scientists reported the latest finding from NASA's Curiosity rover on Mars. The experiment has detected a significant short-term spike in the amount of methane, an organic molecule closely associated with the presence of life, in the Martian atmosphere. Speaking at the autumn meeting of the American Geophysical Union, the scientists described how, over a period of 60 Martian days, which is around the same number of Earth days, instruments on the rover observed the amount of methane in the local atmosphere climb to a level of 7 parts per billion, 10 times its background level of 0.7 parts per billion before falling slowly back again. Though methane has been observed in Mars's atmosphere from both the Earth and the Mars Express orbiter for around 10 years, Curiosity is the first experiment to detect the gas from the surface of the planet itself. As methane is broken down by the harsh UV radiation which continually bombards the Martian surface, the continued detection suggests that the gas is being somehow replenished. But how? Here on Earth, the presence of methane is strongly correlated with the presence of organic life, with around 95% of the 1,800 parts per billion on the Earth's surface being produced by living things. The prospect that the gas on Mars could also be produced by alien life forms is of course highly exciting, but there are a number of other mechanisms which are capable of producing the gas without the need for little green cows. Reactions between the water ice strongly suspected to exist below the surface of Mars and olivine rocks, also known to be present, could create a subsurface store of the gas, which could then be released by geological activity, an explanation which fits with the sharp spike in concentration seen by the rover. Adding further pieces to the puzzle, other results from Curiosity were also published in Science last month, detailing the detection by the Sample Analysis at Mars, SAM, instrument of additional other organic molecules. In this instance, chlorine-containing carbon compounds were discovered in a piece of rock named Cumberland, drilled from the Martian surface in 2013. The SAM instrument cooked part of this sample in its oven and analysed the gases produced, finding the complex molecules chlorobenzene, dichloroethane, dichloropropane and dichlorobutane, another list of molecules which are strongly associated with the presence of life when found here on Earth. However, again, nature complicates the situation with other non-living ways of producing such gases possible. Taken together, the two discoveries add to the list of those which are not proof of, 
but are highly consistent with the current or past presence of life on Mars. More light should be shed on the situation by the planned 2020 Mars rover, which will also aim to return rock samples for more detailed investigations here on Earth. Or, of course, the appearance of friendly green aliens in your back garden. In other news, the European Space Agency's Planck satellite released its first detailed images of polarised emission from the cosmic microwave background as part of a conference in Ferrara, Italy, presenting its 2014 results. The Planck team do not yet feel confident enough in their analysis to comment on the much-talked-about result from the BICEP2 experiment early this year, whose claims of detecting a twirl in the pattern of the cosmic microwave background polarisation have been somewhat questioned by many as being likely due to the contamination by far more local dust within our own galaxy. However, they did present analysis of the polarisation data, which allows them to form constraints on cosmological parameters which are now far less dependent on the findings of the now-retired WMAP satellite. Planck's measurement of these cosmological parameters support with greater precision than ever our picture of the universe containing dark matter, dark energy and ordinary matter. In addition, a striking new visualisation of the polarisation was presented, which listeners are highly encouraged to seek out to view on the internet. In the image, colours show the thermal emission of galactic dust, whilst relief shows the galaxy's magnetic field. The result is a quite beautiful replication of the thick paint impasto style used by Vincent van Gogh on his impressionist paintings of the night sky. Thanks for that, Ian. And now Prabhu interviews Dr Jill Tata about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI. We are pleased to have Dr. Jill Tarter, an astronomer, a holder of Bernard M. Oliver Chair for SETI from the Center for SETI Research, SETI Institute with us for the interview today. Welcome again, Dr. Jill, to the interview in Jodcast today. Thanks very much for inviting me. Dr. Jill, you are a leader in the SETI Institute and also an astronomer, have made several significant contributions to the research in SETI. Where are we today in searching for extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, today we can say that we're doing about 14 factors of 10 better than Frank Drake's original search in in 1960. So that's an enormous amount of improvement, mainly in computer processing capabilities, but also in antenna technology and receiver technology. But we expect to be doing a whole lot better uh, next year and, and 10 years from now. The SKA may well be a big part of that. People who may be listening for the first time, could you tell us, is this an attempt to answer a bigger question relating to are we alone in the universe? That is the fundamental question. We are trying to, we call this the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but in fact we we can't directly detect intelligence. And so what we do is we use technology as a proxy, and we use the tools of the astronomer at the moment in the radio part of the spectrum and the optical part of the spectrum to look for evidence of someone else's technology out there. And if we should find that evidence, we're going to infer that it was built by some intelligent engineer. We don't necessarily know whether that intelligent engineer is still there or not, but it, there was intelligence at some time. That's that's about the best we can do, and that would be one answer to the question, are we alone? It would tell us that there are mathematicians out there if we succeed. In terms of microbes, 
There may be other ways to find non-technological life, looking for the ways that these life forms modified the atmospheres of their planets. We're assuming that they would be planetary organisms. That requires totally different kinds of technologies, a, a chemistry set that can look at the atmosphere and decide what particular molecules and atoms are in the atmosphere of a distant, distant planet and decide whether or not it takes some kind of biology to make that particular chemical mix in the atmosphere. That's something that we call the search for biosignatures. SETI, we can call the search for technosignatures. These are different ways of trying to, to understand whether life, at least life such as we know it and might recognize it, uh, has, has originated and evolved beyond the Earth. That's really exciting. Can you tell us if there are any major observational facilities across the world involved in this work? Well, in the SETI work, in the radio, we have the Allen Telescope Array in, in Northern California. Uh, the Arecibo Radio Telescope is being used by the SETI at Home Group at Berkeley. There's um, a large radio telescope in Italy, Medicina. LOFAR in the Netherlands and the UK has begun doing SETI work. Occasionally, the Parkes Telescope in Australia gets used. I don't want to leave anyone out, but, but those are the, the, major, the major instruments for radio SETI. And then optical SETI is being done at university-class telescopes at Harvard, at UC Berkeley, in um, in Australia, in Campbelltown. We are trying to put another... We had a, a optical SETI program running on, on LIC. We're trying to replace it with a new system that actually goes into the infrared. Also, uh, Charlie Towns has built a spatial interferometer on um, Mount Wilson. Uh, the Berkeley group is trying to instrument that for optical SETI as well. But optical SETI has, um, has been confined to date to meter-class telescopes. So the challenge for that in the future is to get it on bigger pieces of glass and also to move down into the infrared where there's less dust obscuration and scattering. And for the radio, we need, we need more time on the sky and larger collecting area. Are there any research facilities from the United Kingdom is involved in the city work, or uh, likely to be involved? There has been interest in the UK. At the moment, I'm unaware, except as with its involvement in LOFAR, of any direct SETI observations being done here. But I'd like to uh, learn from your listeners that I was wrong. Is there any possibility of Ymerlin getting involved? The the Emerlin array could, in fact, get involved. When you phase up that telescope, it forms a, a nice beam on the sky. And if there were time available to use it for SETI, then I think the back ends could be developed. That is, the signal processing capability could be developed with uh, modern computing. And so that is a possibility. I'm, I'm actually not aware of whether there's any activity along that line. And maybe while I'm here... At Jabo Bank today, I'll learn about some interest in doing that. We also come across a new telescope being built for the future radio astronomy research. 
namely the square kilometer array. Do you foresee the use of the square kilometer array for the SETI research? I'm very hopeful that that will be the case, that the square kilometer array will continue to keep a science case as part of its portfolio, a science case that we call the cradle of life. The square kilometer array could directly look for engineered radio signals from uh, an intelligent uh, technological species, and it can also search for very large organic molecules uh, in the interstellar medium and help us to distinguish between the reality and the poetry that that we blend together today as we try and understand how the uh, the building blocks for life as we know it were generated and delivered to the early earth because if we can understand that process maybe we'll have a better handle on where it might have happened uh, in other solar systems. But right now, we can't make a direct connection from point A, you formed this large molecule, to point B, it was delivered intact or mostly intact to the early Earth. So it seems quite reasonable, and it's, it's uh, as I said, it's very poetic to think about the stardust from which we are formed. Um, but there's a, quite a bit of science that needs to be done to fill in the details. This is really exciting to know. We not only look for living being, we also look for signatures of the development of the living being evolved around us. Absolutely. We are trying to figure out where we came from and whether there's anyone else out there. And the story of how chemistry and physics ultimately produced biology on the planet Earth is a complex and fascinating story that that we are beginning to piece together but don't have all of the details yet and what we know so far indicates that there doesn't seem to have been anything very special about the earth in this process so it's not unreasonable to think that it might have helped it might have happened elsewhere so it's quite interesting. SETI seems to connect all branch of science and engineering and thinking process and make human race to work together for one goal. Well, that's that's why we formed the SETI Institute as a non-profit organization back in 1984. We wanted to have a home, a housing for research scientists from a whole lot of different disciplines, all of which had some relevance, had some bearing on the question of the origin and the evolution and the distribution of life in the universe. Uh, it's often called astrobiology, in which case SETI is just one form of astrobiology that looks for intelligent life. And we found it extremely beneficial to have all of these different scientists and engineers under one roof collaborating on this large question. This seems to be a revolutionary thought indeed, and I, I still feel we will have much more results in the coming years and that will make this project more and more attractive to the young people. Well, I certainly hope I, I, I hope that we have more results in the, in the coming years. Since I started a long time ago, there have been two real game changers, which are extremophiles and exoplanets. So when I was a young student and starting out, what we thought we knew about life would have restricted it to environments that were um, very much like what you and I would be comfortable in. But in fact, extremophiles have shown us that life has evolved to occupy the most extreme niches 
on the planet. Our study other stars has led us to the conclusion that planets around other stars, exoplanets, are extremely common. They're probably just about every star has a planet. And that's a lot different than early days when we knew about the planets in our solar system and we really wondered whether the process of planet formation was common. Did any other star have planets? Well, now we know the answer. It's yes, they do. There are lots of planets out here. And because the range of physical conditions under which life as we know it can not only survive but thrive, it may be that there's a lot more habitable real estate out there in the cosmos than we once might have thought. That is really exciting to know. SETI research is nearly five decades old. A good part of it, you have been associated with this and you've been leading several research projects and you also won several recognitions, awards and also been listed as the top 100 most influential person on planet Earth. Would you have some message to the young researchers? Well, I think the only message I have is to... is to work hard and learn how to do something really well, something that you love doing, something that's really fun for you and you get really good at it, and then go look for what opportunities there are to use your skills to pose and answer new questions. So I started out as an engineer, and then I did a PhD in astrophysics. And when I read about SETI and the possibility of using radio telescopes to answer this question that for millennia we'd been asking the priests and the philosophers what we should believe, I got so excited because I had the right skills at the right time, was in the right place, and could try and do an experiment to answer this important question rather than have to accept somebody's belief. So it was an exciting time, the time when we could begin to, to explore to find out what is and no longer have to accept what someone else told us. So I lucked out. I had good problem-solving skills. I knew engineering. Um, I knew something about what the sky looked like and, and how the astronomical world worked. And it, it um, I was able to apply it to this new field of setting. Thank you very much for that inspiring message. And once again, Dr. Jill Tartar, we thank you for leading such a project which is trying to unite the entire human race as one family and look for the nearest neighbors anywhere else in the universe. I think you've just summarized the most important aspect of the search. If we think about it and we actually adopt a more cosmic perspective and we try and place ourselves in that bigger picture, it actually trivializes the differences among humans on this planet that we find so difficult today. And I hope it, I hope that it helps us, in fact, manage to figure out how to cooperate and take on these large challenges that we have in front of us if we're to have a long future. Thank you, Dr. Jill Tartar. We wish you the very best on this big journey ahead of you and all of us. Thank you you very much for inviting me. Thanks for that, Prabhu. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So, Megan, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I thought I'd start with a story that's actually nine years old, as is the Jogcast. On January the 19th, 2006, just after we started our, we, we launched our first episode of the Jogcast, um, the New Horizons spacecraft 
was launched on its way to Pluto, which back then was still a planet. Unfortunately, it's been demoted <laughs> since it was launched, but uh, it's still on its way. I was in a school a couple of weeks ago, and one of the I asked the, the kids how many how many planets are in the solar system, and several of them put their hands up. One shouted out, "There are eight because Pluto exploded." Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> luckily for us, and luckily for New Horizons, Pluto is still exactly where it was in the outer reaches of the solar system. And it may have exploded. I was going to say it may have exploded a very long time ago, or more accurately, uh, something may have impacted it, which may or may not explain why it has such a large moon-like body. Charon orbiting it. Well, that's right. It's the only planet-like body, only planet as it was then, dwarf planet now, that's pretty much a double object. It's two very similar-sized objects. It does have a very eccentric orbit, so yeah, something could have smashed into it and caused that to happen. And this is one of the things that hopefully New Horizons is going to shed some light on, because it's the first time we'll actually see the surface of Pluto in any detail. So it's going to be quite exciting when it gets there. I say it's taken nine years so far. And it is the fastest spacecraft we've ever launched. It, when it left the Earth, it was going at 16 kilometers a second when it separated from the, sur- yeah, the Sturge- the, um, third stage rocket engine. It took the Voyagers quite a bit longer to get that distance from the Earth, didn't it? Well, it did. It, we, if you think about how long it took, nine hours to get to the Moon, whereas it took the Apollo missions three days to cover that distance. So that shows you just how fast it was going compared to other things. Yeah, if I recall correctly, it took like about nine years for um, Voyager 2 to reach Neptune. About nine years. And it's a bit further to Pluto. Yeah. Depending, uh, obviously. Depends where. on where Pluto <laughs> is these days. <laughs> yeah. I think Pluto might technically be closer. How did they get New Horizons up to that speed? Uh, it was the launch rocket. It doesn't have any main engines itself. It has maneuvering thrusters, but it doesn't act- actually have a main engine on board. Uh, it was it was launched on an Atlas V rocket, and it was that that had three stages of the Atlas V that gave it the the acceleration. I was just thinking, we've as the Jogcast, we've accomplished quite a lot in nine years, but getting to Pluto is not one of the things no. that we've managed to do. And we've also probably spent less but... time asleep than New Horizons has. Most of the time, it's been coasting out there. It's been uh, in in sleep mode to preserve the power and the electronics. So they, they keep turning it on every now and then to, to test things. But the reason I want to talk about it now is that they have actually just turned it back on for its its actual fly past uh, of Pluto, which oh, is... So it's going to stay on. Yeah, it's going to happen. In its closest approach to Pluto is going to be in July. With all its, I think it's got seven science instruments on board, so sort of visible infrared imaging, spectrometers, ultraviolet, and there's a radio experiment as well, which is going to hopefully measure the atmospheric composition and temperature if there is much of an atmosphere. There's a probe of the solar wind as well, and another one to measure plasma escaping from Pluto's atmosphere, and another one which has been counting dust on the way from Earth to Pluto. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think that was a student-designed experiment, that one, which is quite interesting. I think it's the only planetary experiment designed by students that's actually flown, which is quite cool. But yeah, so closest approach is going to be in July, and it's not going to stay very long. It's not actually going to go into orbit, so things like the, the Cassini and Galileo probes that went to Jupiter, they spent quite a while in orbit taking photographs and doing lots of science experiments. New Horizons it doesn't have a main engine, so as it goes past Pluto, it's just going to travel past and keep going. They can change its direction slightly, but they can't slow it down and go into orbit. So it's going off into the Kuiper Belt. It is going to go off into the Kuiper Belt. It's actually going to, when it goes past Pluto, it's going to be travelling at 14 kilometres per second as it whizzes past, which is pretty fast, really. It can get from Old Trafford to Emirates Stadium in a really, really short amount of time, whereas <laughs> the... Average supporter would probably take about an hour. Yeah. Um, We'd be talking Manchester to London, so that's something in the region of 200 miles. Sorry for the miles instead of kilometres, but um, you're talking like 
20 seconds to cover that distance. Yeah. Whereas the distance out to Pluto is it takes light four hours, 25 minutes to get back from Pluto. So the signals we're sending to the spacecraft take nearly four and a half hours to reach the spacecraft and the signals coming back from the experiments, so sending back all the the imaging data and the the telemetry and all the rest of it, the radio signals, they're going to take four hours, 25 minutes to get back to the Earth, covering 4.9 billion kilometres, which is about 32 astronomical units. One of the things that uh, I think of uh, in talking about this telescope is the fact that it's... um, Well, one, it's been traveling for nine years, and then uh, there were probably uh, several years of um, constructing the telescope and the instruments before that. So a lot of uh, both the hardware and software may have been like cutting edge sometime around 2002. Uh, maybe some of the stuff you could have updated in 2006 at the latest, but it's some of the stuff is kind of antiquated by today's standards. I have picture now. I don't think the um, Horizon spacecraft is running Microsoft by picture booting Windows <laughs> XP, <laughs> and then having to do like uh, you know software update check. <laughs> you have 17,000 updates to install. <laughs> Oh, update Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer 11. <laughs> Warning, this object is no longer supported as a planet. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. It, it was a planet before uh, uh, Horizons was launched. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the two extra moons that they discovered more recently, they, they had discovered them at the time the spacecraft was launched, but they hadn't actually been named yet, I think. In the the press pack oh, that the, yeah. that they had for the launch briefing, um, it just mentions them by their catalogue numbers. They don't actually yet have names. Is that Nixon? Nixon Hydra, yeah. But after it's been past Pluto, it's they say it can do course corrections. They do have manoeuvring thrusters on board. So what they're going to do is they're going to decide which other Kuiper Belt objects they're going to go and visit. So once it's done the Pluto flyby, they can then make the decision as to where, where to go next and adjust the the trajectory of the spacecraft accordingly, and then fly past a couple of other objects before it disappears out of the solar system like the Pioneer and Voyager spacecraft did already. Because this is going so fast, it's eventually going to overtake them, and it will get further faster than the other spacecraft that are in the outer edges of the solar system. This does get also into the debate on what is the edge of the solar system, which I think has come up before since I've been recording Jodcast. But it's it's another data point, so it's going to measure because they're all they're all going out from the Earth, but out of the solar system in different directions. So this will be another point that we're sampling through the edge of wherever that that transition zone, where the, the sun's influence hits the interstellar medium. That's true, and we did learn quite a bit about three D topology of the uh, uh, heliopause uh, from the uh, spacecraft that have already flown out of the solar system as well. Yeah. So all these spacecraft, they they have their design with one particular goal in mind, but they all have extended missions that can do all sorts of things that that they weren't necessarily designed to do in the first place. So the item I brought to uh, Odds and Ends today is a press release from the Atacama Large Millimeter-slash-Submillimeter Array, or ALMA. This is actually science done with new data from two telescopes, ALMA and uh, CARMA, the Combined Array for Research Millimeter Wave Astronomy. And researchers using data from both these telescopes together uh, have been studying a supermassive black hole at the center of a relatively bland nearby galaxy called NGC 1266, uh, which is actually a galaxy I know very well. 
because I've worked with it in some surveys for a very long time. The best description of this galaxy is that it's a relatively boring-looking disk galaxy. So imagine a spiral galaxy without the spiral pattern or the dust or the star formation or anything else uh, very interesting in it. And uh, that's kind of uh, what NGC 1266 looks like. It's just sort of like a smooth disk of stars, and then there's a uh, another giant bulge of stars. And how is that classified, just out of interest? It sounds like it should be a sort of elliptical-shaped galaxy, but obviously it's not. Well, it's actually a transition between spiral galaxy and elliptical galaxy called lenticular, or S0. Lenticular galaxies like uh, NGC 1266 are kind of like elliptical galaxies in that uh, they don't contain a lot of cold gas or dust, and so they don't form that many stars because they don't contain the gas to... Uh, form the stars in the first place. NGC 1266 does have some gas in the very center of the galaxy, and uh, I've actually uh, made images of the interstellar dust in the center of the galaxy as well. Astronomers using Alma and Karma looked at the gas more carefully and found that it was really turbulent, that uh, when you look at the very center, you have like gas traveling at really high speeds, much higher than what you would kind of expect for uh, gas uh, just orbiting around a uh, supermass black hole in the center of the galaxy. So what they think is happening is that the gas is actually uh, being churned up around the black hole. So uh, uh, around uh, black holes, you do... Um, you have these uh, disks of gas where gas uh, slows down and falls into a black hole and then gets really hot. And then when it gets really hot, you often um, get a lot of gas gets ejected out of the poles of um, that uh, accretion disk. And it's the ejection of this gas which is actually really churning up the cold gas that's in the environment of the black hole and actually seems to be uh, shutting down star formation uh, within the center of this galaxy, which is a very interesting find. Now, astronomers have discussed a lot about how when you have supermassive black holes, they become active galactic uh, nuclei, things like quasars, which are really bright in X-ray and optical and radio wavelengths uh, that produce these really, really powerful jets of gas uh, that come out. And it's like uh, they thought that uh, you need something really extreme like that to shut down star formation. Here's a relatively uh, weak example where it's like they're, the jets in the center of NGC 1266 aren't terribly strong compared to like your radio emitting quasar, but they're still strong enough to stop stars from forming within the center of this galaxy. So you just end up with this uh, really churned up molecular gas. And why is Alma and Karma suitable for studying this, like the wavelengths and the resolution? Alma and Karma uh, are just very effective at detecting molecular gas, which produces emission at millimeter and submillimeter wavelengths. And you can get really good resolution, I mean, like looking right into the central region of the galaxy with Alma, I guess. 
You can see stuff which is about the uh, size of an arc second. Uh, you can measure distances in the sky in terms of angles. It's 108 degrees from one horizon, to one end of the horizon to the other. Uh, each degree can be divided up into 60 arc minutes. Each arc minute can be divided into 60 arc seconds. That's and a really small area. It's really small, but it's like optical telescopes typically do. Uh, arc second in size. Mm-hmm. Now, while the, that's been typical for optical telescopes, while things like the Hubble Space Telescope have been able to do like stuff that's 10 times smaller than that for uh, a couple of decades now, it's been really challenging. You need telescopes which are 1,000 times wider to get the same resolution. And ALMA and KARMA are actually, uh, since they are arrays of multiple antennas, they can space out the antennas so that they're a thousand times wider than like the typical uh, optical telescope. Is that there? Are, there are images associated with this press release, and they um, there'll be a link to them in the show notes, and they do look quite impressive. There's a few that are sort of artist impressions of the what's going on in the centre of this galaxy, but there are some actual photographs as well. So combining data from the Hubble Space Telescope and ALMA um, to make a nice color image of you can see all the turbulent gas in the middle of this galaxy. So it's worth having a look. Yeah, one of the artist impressions actually kind of looks like um, either Van Gogh or <laughs> Edward Munch, who did the scream. Yeah, I see what you mean, actually. Yeah, sort of starry night kind Black of hole. swills in the sky kind of thing. The thing that made made me laugh when I read this press release was uh, they're talking about you know all this turbulence stopping the star formation from happening. I just have an image of a six-year-old sitting in an aeroplane that's going through a thunderstorm trying to make an airfix kit. Well, that turbulence is just you're just going to end up with bits everywhere. That's just what it made me think of. <laughs> no, nowhere near the same, but it's it's a fun image anyway. My odd and end, quite brief. It's just about a telescope which has been in space for a while called New Star, the Nuclear Spectroscopic Telescope Array, launched by NASA a couple of years ago, and it looks at X-rays, and specifically really high-energy X-rays. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that they now are turning it on the Sun. So previously, this telescope was really made for looking into distant galaxies, making measurements of black holes, for example, or the, the emission coming from them. Um, and so as the principal investigator of the project put it, At first, I thought the whole idea was crazy. Why would we use the most sensitive high-energy X-ray telescope ever built to look at something in our own backyard? Um, But what they found is it's actually a really good instrument for looking at the sun. Uh, The X-rays it's looking at, the sun isn't so powerful that it would overwhelm the telescope, whereas others like Chandra apparently probably would uh, be damaged by making these observations of the sun. And so what they can look at is questions about our own star that you'd think we might have solved them, but we haven't yet, which is things like why is the corona, this sort of outer atmosphere of the sun, so much hotter than the photosphere, which is the surface as we see it. Um, It is, but no one quite knows why. And there's an idea that it could be to do with very small flares, called nano flares, and New Star may be able to pick up these nano flares if they exist. Um, and then more exotically, although I must admit I really know nothing about this, New Star could apparently potentially detect the presence of theoretical particles called axions in the sun's core, which may be responsible for dark matter. But I think that's probably uh, a little more speculative in terms of the goal. It's not actually detecting the axons itself, is it? I, I don't know. I have to admit, I have no idea. Maybe evidence for them. I mean, it, well, no, maybe, it's detecting maybe... x-rays, so it's not... Yeah, so maybe it's uh, detecting uh, x-rays that are produced when the uh, axions get deflected by something in the sun. So I just think it's quite interesting because it's it's a telescope that's been around for a couple of years, 
and they're turning on a new object, which is our own sun. Well, they can actually point it at the sun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the better known stories in infrared astronomy is uh, there was a telescope in the late 1990s called the Wide Field Infrared Explorer. Uh, there was like a telescope cover which opened and the telescope accidentally pointed at the sun. Infrared telescopes have to be cooled down a huge amount uh, using uh, liquid nitrogen or liquid helium. And so uh, it got so hot that it uh, burned off all of its coolant and then became mostly useless after that. Oh. Everybody who was associated with the telescope got shuffled on to another project very quickly. <laughs> yeah, the telescope was mostly useless after that although somebody found uh, a use for like this optical side telescope uh, which was sensitive enough to detect really bright stars so it's like he used it to monitor really bright stars but this is something which you couldn't do with uh, an ultraviolet or an optical or an infrared telescope just because it would bake the telescope yeah. uh, doing this with an x-ray telescope just sounds cool good general advice for everyone don't point your telescope at the sun unless it's a very special telescope and you know it can do or, it or that you have like some sort of filter this includes amateur telescopes as well absolutely it's uh you can uh melt the optics in a uh a lot of uh, reflector telescopes and in fact uh there was a case with a submillimeter telescope in chile uh, the acronym was SEST, managed uh, partly by the European Southern Observatory by uh, Sweden or one of the other Scandinavian countries, which may have been what the S stood for. Well, it looked like a classical radio antenna, uh, but with an extra shiny reflective surface so that it could function well at submillimeter wavelengths. It accidentally pointed at the sun when it was off during the daytime. The light focused on the secondary a reflector in the telescope lit it on fire. It's uh, one of the more interesting stories from the history of the European Southern Observatory. <laughs> well, when? fortunately, with New Star, they've already pointed it and it hasn't fried anything. So that's good news. And they have a mission extension until 2016. New Star is a nice little telescope. It'd be nice to see it keep on going. It is. It's, it's it, doing stuff. I should, I should point out, it's not just been looking at things in the distant universe. It's been looking at nearby galaxies as well, which is something I've been sort of slightly involved with. But it's also been looking at stuff within our own Milky Way as well. So stuff in our wider backyard, possibly. But yeah, the first time it's looked at the sun. And the image, again, it's a really pretty image. So there'll be a link to it in the show notes. So mm. do go and have a look at the, yeah. the picture. Very, very versatile. One of, one of the other things, just to say in support of uh, New Star, there have been many other X-ray telescopes that have come before, uh, such as um, the Einstein mission, uh, ROSAT, uh, ATCA, uh, Chandra, and XMM Newton. New Star is looking at X-rays with much, much shorter wavelengths uh, than any of those other telescopes looked at. And so it's examining a part of the electromagnetic spectrum, which isn't as well explored. So it's uh, producing a very useful contribution to uh, astronomy research. And now, an astronomer with plenty of flair of his own. Here's the January Northern Hemisphere night sky with Ian Morrison. The night sky for January 2015. Well, of course, this month, Orion is centre stage, fairly high in the south, and acting as a pointer 
to many of the constellations nearby. I'm sure you know that below the central star of the three stars that make up Orion's belt is the sword of Orion, and with binoculars you'll see a little hazy glow there, which is the Orion Nebula. It's called an H2 region. It's a birthplace of stars, and lit in fact by the light for four very bright stars that make up what's called the trapezium at its heart. If you take those three stars of the belt and work down towards the left, you come to Sirius in Canis Major, the brightest star in the northern skies. If you take the three stars up to the right, you come, of course, to Taurus the Bull. And you'll first reach the Hyades Cluster, which forms the head of the bull, and a star called Aldebaran, which actually is about halfway between ourselves and the Hyades Cluster, forms the Eye of the Bull. And a bit further in the same direction is that sweet little cluster called the Pleiades, beautiful in a small telescope. Up to the left of Orion, we have the heavenly twins, Gemini, with their bright stars, Castor above and Pollux below. Higher still, towards the zenith, this month in the evening, is the bright star Capello, a yellowish star, in the constellation of Auriga. The Milky Way runs through Auriga. It's very rich, if you observe it with binoculars, and some very nice open clusters there. Moving along the Milky Way, towards the northwest, you come to Perseus, and then Cassiopeia. And between the two is that rather lovely region where we have two clusters forming the Perseus double cluster. Rising in the east late evening, we have Leo the Lion. And in fact, there's an interloper there, the brightest object you'll see in the night sky this month, which is in fact Jupiter. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, I've just mentioned Jupiter. It's shining at magnitude minus 2.4. It rises about 8 o'clock at the beginning of the month, lying about 8.5 degrees up and to the right of Regulus in Leo. It's now moving westwards in retrograde motion across the heavens towards Cancer, which it will enter next month. By the end of the month, it rises about 1745 UT, with a very slight increase in magnitude to minus 2.6. It's then due south and highest in the sky with an elevation of about 56 degrees around 0100 in the very early morning. As the Earth moves towards Jupiter, its disk increases slightly in angular size from 43.4 to 45.3 arc seconds. So you'll easily see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot when it's pointing towards us, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, Saturn... That's now a morning object, rising about 5 o'clock as the month begins, but by about 3.30 by its end. It starts the month in Libra, but moves into Scorpius on the 4th of the month, above the star Antares and the stars that make up the head of Scorpius. Its diameter increases from 15.5 to 16.1 arc seconds. It'll be shining at magnitude plus 0.6, and high enough in the southeast before dawn, to make out the beautiful ring system, which has now opened out to about 24 degrees. Mercury. On New Year's Day, the start of the year, Mercury will be seen 
probably needing monoculars, low in the southwest down to the lower right of Venus. Its magnitude will then be about minus 0.8. It'll be just three degrees away from Venus. So they'll both be seen in the field of a pair of binoculars, but it gets better. From the 8th to the 12th, Mercury and Venus stay within a degree of each other. More of that in the highlights. Its disk showing a gibbous phase will be around 6.5 arc seconds across. Mercury reaches greatest elongation east of the Sun on January the 14th, when it will lie about 19 degrees away. During the following week, its phase thins and it drops away to the lower right of Venus, soon becoming lost from view as it moves to inferior conjunction, that's between us and the Sun, on January the 30th. Mars. It's been moving eastwards relative to the stars for quite a while now. It starts the month in Capricornus and moves into Aquarius on the 8th. It dims slightly from magnitude plus 1.1 to plus 1.2 during the month. And the angular size of its disk falls from 4.8 down to 4.4 arc seconds. Obviously best observed as darkness falls, low above the southwestern horizon. It lies about 24 degrees up and to the left of Venus as the month begins and sets around three hours after the sun. Due to its eastward motion, it sets at about the same time after the sun all month. And given its angular size and low elevation, no details can be seen on its salmon pink surface. Well, finally, Venus. Venus is now an evening object, shining at magnitude minus 3.9 all month and setting some 70 minutes after the sun as the month begins. So, with that magnitude, it should be easy to spot, low above the southwestern horizon. Its angular size increases a little, from 10.3 to 10.8 arc seconds. And it will appear as a small dot, blurred by atmospheric turbulence. I suspect that due to its low elevation, its light will be split into a short vertical spectrum by refraction, in the atmosphere. Quite nice to look at through a telescope. Well, there aren't many highlights this month. I've obviously mentioned Jupiter, which is becoming very, very well to see, and you haven't got to wait up too late to do so. But what about the other possibilities this month? Well, on January the 10th, Venus and Mercury come together to within 39 arc minutes. That's pretty close. Venus magnitude minus 3.9, Mercury minus 0.7. They'll be seen low together in the southwest after sunset and will make a wonderful pair as seen in a small telescope. Mars will lie high above and over to their left. On January the 16th, about an hour before dawn, Saturn will be seen three and a half degrees to the lower left of a waning crescent moon. And as always, on the night sky page on the Jodderbank website, I have little star charts to show you exactly where and how to look. A nice one, in fact, on January the 29th, the gibbous moon is crossing the Hyades cluster. So after sunset on the 29th, a waxing gibbous moon will, if clear, be seen just under a degree up and to the left of Aldebaran in Taurus, having passed across the Hyades cluster during the day. That should make a nice photographic uh, image. Each month I say a little bit about an area of the moon, and because we haven't had many highlights, let me just mention that on again January the 29th, it's a very good night to observe two of the great lunar craters on the moon, 
Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old, and is thought to have been formed by one of the remnants of the asteroid Bacticina. In fact, another asteroid that originated from the breakup of this asteroid, uh, a smaller one, may well have caused the Chicxulub crater 65 million years ago. Tycho has a diameter of 85 kilometers and is nearly 5 kilometers deep. At full moon, seen in the image, the rays of material that were ejected when it formed can be seen arcing across the surface. Copernicus, on the other hand, is about 800 million years old and lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum, beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It is 93 kilometers wide and nearly 4 kilometers deep. There's a classic Terrace crater. Both, of course, can be seen with binoculars. For the image of the month, for the second month, I've actually used a picture I've taken myself, not because it's brilliant, although it's not bad, but it's of the moon taken with very simple equipment and using a very small 7 megapixel compact camera. And I've just described how you do it and the software that's used to actually make up the final image from a number of lunar segments, parts of the moon taken individually. And it just shows, I hope, what you can do with very simple equipment. So it might be worth having a look. So enjoy the months observing. At least you've got plenty of hours of darkness. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for everyone in the Southern Hemisphere, here's Claire Brotherton with what you can see in the night sky this month. Kia and welcome to the January Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. As we move past our southern hemisphere summer solstice, the days will begin to slowly get shorter. But hopefully we still have a few months of good summer weather to look forward to, along with some nice clear skies. On the fourth of the month, the Earth reaches perihelion, the closest point in its orbit around the Sun. In theory, this means that the Sun appears at its largest in the sky, and we receive more radiation from it than at any other time of the year. In practice, however, this effect is tiny. The Earth's orbit is very close to being circular, so the distance between the Earth and the Sun varies by only 3% over the course of the year. The changing tilt of the Earth's axis has a much more significant effect, and is the true cause of the changing weather patterns and seasons we experience here on Earth. Following the sun down in our evening skies is brilliant Venus, the brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. Venus sets around an hour after the sun throughout January. During the first half of the month it will be joined by Mercury, which reaches its greatest eastern elongation on the 15th, before swiftly disappearing from our evening skies towards the end of January, ready to make its best morning appearance for some time from mid-February to mid-March. Because both Mercury and Venus are closer to the Sun than we are, they always appear close to the Sun in the sky, either following the Sun down in the west in the evening or rising just before it in the east in the morning. For the first few weeks of January, Mercury and Venus will make an eye-catching pair, low in the southwestern evening twilight. A little above and to the right of this pair is red Mars, which will slowly move towards Venus over the next two months. Mars is now around 300 million kilometers away from Earth and appears as just a tiny red dot. It will set around 11.30 at the beginning of the month, but by the end it will be disappearing with the last of the evening twilight. 
Jupiter continues its journey into our evening skies, rising towards the northeast by around 11pm at the start of January. But by the beginning of February, it will be rising just as the sun sets and become a spectacular evening object. Meanwhile, Saturn continues to rise earlier and earlier in our eastern morning skies. Also stretching across the eastern sky after dark is the Milky Way, becoming brightest in the southeast towards the Southern Cross, or Tepunga. The false and diamond crosses are nearby. Above and set apart from the Milky Way is the bright star Canopus, the second brightest star in our nighttime sky, at magnitude minus 0.7. To Maori, it is known either as Araki, meaning high-born, or as Atutahi, meaning standalone, and is considered to be a tapu or sacred star, never setting here in New Zealand. Canopus is the brightest star in the constellation of Carina, the keel, which along with Vela the sails and Puppis the poop deck, once formed part of the southern constellation of Argo Navis, the great ship used by Jason and the Argonauts in their search for the Golden Fleece. The constellation was split into the three components used today by French astronomer Nicolas Louis de la Say in 1763. As the Milky Way runs through this part of the sky, there are many interesting nebulae and star clusters to look at, but perhaps the most famous is NGC 3372, the Eta Carina Nebula. NGC 3372 is a huge cloud of glowing gas, estimated to be around 7,500 light-years away. It is one of the largest nebulae of its type in our skies, at least four times the size of the Orion Nebula, and the brightest central parts can be picked out with the naked eye. With binoculars, you should be able to see a golden star in the nebula. This is Eta Carina, a massive, unstable star that is on the verge of blowing itself apart. In fact, Eta Carina is a system of at least two stars. The combined luminosity of this system is around 5 million times that of our own sun. This massive star is so bright that the radiation pressure it produces is almost too strong for the gravity holding it together, causing a constant stream of material out into space. Eta Carina has varied hugely in brightness since it was first catalogued by Edmund Halley in 1677. It was only fourth magnitude at the time and appeared as a fairly ordinary star. But by the mid-18th century, it had brightened to a magnitude of around two before dimming back to its previous brightness. It began to brighten again in the 1820s, reaching a peak magnitude of minus 0.8 in 1843 and becoming the second brightest star in the nighttime sky for around two decades. Astronomers now believe that this extreme brightening was linked to a huge outburst, with the star blasting off around 10% of its mass in two huge clouds of gas and dust, which now form the peanut-shaped homunculus nebula, which should be visible in a small telescope. Eta Carina is now back to around fourth magnitude, but it is brightening again. It is expected to end its life in a huge supernova within the next few thousand years. Also within the nebula are a number of interesting open star clusters. Eta Carina is part of the massive open cluster Trompler 16. Although the cluster is visible to the naked eye, even the smallest binoculars will reveal a few of the individual stars within it. Trompler 16 contains a high proportion of very young stars, some formed within the last few million years. Along with Eta Carina, it also contains WR25 and TR16244, three of the brightest and most massive stars in our galaxy. Trumpler 14 is also nearby and is the other main cluster within the nebula. Trumpler 14 is one of the youngest star clusters known and is still going through a period of massive star formation. 
Some estimates put the age of this cluster at only 300 to 500,000 years. Around four degrees south of the Eta Carina Nebula, and at one point of the Diamond Cross, is the Theta Carina Cluster, or IC 2602, containing around 60 individual stars. The cluster is also known as the Southern Pleiades, but with a magnitude of 1.9, it is much fainter than its northern counterpart. The cluster spans around 50 arc minutes, over one and a half full moon diameters, so it is best viewed with binoculars or a low-powered telescope, giving a wide field of view. Other open clusters worth looking out for in Carina include NGC 2516 and NGC 3532. Both are visible to the naked eye, but a good pair of binoculars will reveal a stunning sight. Following its discovery by Australian amateur astronomer Terry Lovejoy in August, Comet C 2014 Q2 Lovejoy is fast becoming a must-see sight in our skies. It was first spotted in the constellation of Puppis at a magnitude of 15. But as it continues on its approach towards the sun, the comet has brightened considerably, reaching around magnitude six by mid-December and easily visible in binoculars. At the beginning of January, the comet moves from Lepus through Eridanus and continues on towards Triangulum. It has been brightening faster than expected and is predicted to reach a peak magnitude of around 4.4 on the 10th of January, when it will be passing through the constellation of Taurus. The comet may well be visible to the naked eye, although the full moon won't help with observing. Sadly, from around mid-January onwards, Comet Lovejoy moves progressively further north and won't be visible from here in New Zealand. So get out there and grab a glimpse whilst you can. Wishing you clear skies and a happy new year from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Well, we've had no post or email this month. Uh, we did get a message via Facebook. Francis Day says hi. Enjoyed Peter Pan and the Princess. Seasons greetings to all of you out there. Wanted to say how much I love the show and thank you for the fascinating stuff you've covered over the last year. Can't wait to hear what's in store next year. B the Jodcast is the best podcast ever. I think the B is a pair of sunglasses. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> We apologize. Your um, emoticon did not get、uh, copied properly into our show notes. I enjoyed the panto as well as ever. See if you can work out who's who. I got to be a man this year. <laughs> oh, you play those characters <laughs> usually. <laughs> On Twitter,、uh, we had no Twitter messages, but thank you for the retweets and for the follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net, on Twitter at twitter.com/jodcast, on Facebook at facebook.com/jodcast, on YouTube at youtube.com/jodcast, on Flickr at flickr.com/groups/jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us real post. The address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show, and all that remains is to say thank you very much to Dr. Jill Tarter for the interview. The editors were Ben Shaw, Mark Perver. And Prabhu Tiagaraj, and the producer was George Bendo. So until next time, Jordan. Jordan.